God has really laid a lot of different things on my heart. But before I get into the word, and I'm going to just ask you right now, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 4 through 10. We're going to include verses 11 and 12 in next week's sermon. <clears throat> but I want to start off by reminding you of a movie. Um, and again, I don't recommend this movie. I've seen it in clear play, and you may not have clear play. And, and I've had people say, well, Pastor Mike, you recommended that movie. And I saw it. And I asked them, Do you, did you have it in clear play? And they say, well, no. And I have to apologize. So I'm just letting you know, I don't recommend this movie. I've seen it in clear play. But it's the movie Men in Black. Now, you might remember the very first scene in Men in Black, uh, Agent K realizes that he has to replace his partner who's retiring. So he's looking for a new partner to train, at least so we're told in the beginning of the movie. And the next scene, Will Smith, we see him chasing down an alien. And, and of course, this is a comedy. Will Smith is in it, you know. And as he's chasing, he runs faster than this alien, which is remarkable with such agility. Uh, he doesn't apprehend him, unfortunately. And so... Agent K shows up and interviewing him and says, hey, look, gives him his card, and I'd like you to join us uh, in this organization. And, you know, Will Smith is just wondering, what's going on here? So he comes, and he has to go through a series of tests. He is told that he is going to be a part of the potential, be a part of this organization that regularly saves the world. And one of those tests, and again, please understand this. This is all with humor. A um, little scene where he's pulling the table, if you remember that one, making so much noise as he's trying to do the test, written test. But then it's a shooting test. And before, all, and there's several other candidates, and he has his gun. He's a policeman, of course, and all the other military, whatever. And there's this, it, it's kind of like one of those arcade games. And as he's... It, as the scene appears, it's inner city, and there's aliens flying and running around and people scurrying about, and all these other guys, as soon as it pops up, they start shooting all the aliens, and Will is just looking around, and he points the gun and makes one shot, and Zed, the leader, stops everything, and he says, wait, 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 wait. Of all of these people, you shot the little girl? And he says, well, yeah. He says, why would you do that? And he says, well, here you are in the inner city with all of these aliens running around and a little white girl, and she's got a stack of books, and one of them is physics. I am highly suspicious. So you shot her. Yes, I did. And, and it kind of sets off this movie. And at the end of the series, you know, he gets inducted, and his name changes to, what is it, Jay? He's Agent Jay, and he's partnered with Agent K. I think the only person who has a real name in the organization is the leader. His, his name is Zed. And what's interesting, though, is in this process, very humorous process, honestly, is we discover that his old identity is completely erased, government level on down, completely erased. He dresses in only one suit. That's why they call it Men in Black. And his life now completely changes. And he sees oh, the world from a very different perspective, does he not, if you've seen the movie? Now, I want you to, if you've seen that, and if you understand the way I've described this, as we from the world, now come into Christ, into the body of Christ, it is true that Christ has changed us. 
It is true that every single one of us, as Isaiah puts it so beautifully, you have received a new name. You used to be called deserted, uh, unloved, but that name has changed and you are now beautiful and married, he says. And he calls us by a new name and he has changed our identity. He has changed who we are. We had a new nature and we pursued that old, excuse me, we had an old nature and we pursued that old nature in this, in a sinful lifestyle. Do you remember before you got saved and that lifestyle that you lived and Christ came and he rescued us out of that and he gave us a new nature and I'm going to put it this way, he gave us a new identity. But the passage we're going to look at this morning is not a focus on you individually. This is a corporate identity change. Sometimes corporations have to change their identity, their name. I know that there was in uh, Groveview, I, I guess it was called Groveview Apartments, there was a hostage situation and a girl died. Someone was murdered there and they had to change they, they repainted the building. I guess they got new management. They got a facelift. They, it, they changed their name. Everything about it changed because of this incident and this stain, if you will, on their reputation. Everything changed. God has given you, not just individually, but corporately, a facelift. He has given us a new identity. We're going to read about that identity change today, right now. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to be starting with verse 4. And what I want you to do is, as we go through this, if you wouldn't mind, I like to mark in my Bible. Sometimes people think that the pages that the Bible words are written on are so sacred, you never want to mark in them. I hold a different opinion about that. I try to mark my Bible up as much as I can. Um, not that there's anything holy about that, but it just helps me in remembering stuff the Lord's shown me. So here's what I'm going to have you do. As we go through this, could you just take your pen and underline or circle or put a box, or whatever, just highlight, perhaps, if you have a yellow highlighter, but every metaphor. You know what a metaphor is? A metaphor is not a term that's literal, but it is a term that is figurative. You're going to come across one of these. I'll just let you know. Living stones. That's a metaphor. You know, some of us may be pretty hard, but you're not stone hard, okay? And that's not what this is getting at at all. But living stones, we're going to talk about it, but you are not a stone, literally, but symbolically, figuratively, you are. So that's a metaphor. So I'm going to just have you, as we go through this, these several verses, just underline all the different metaphors. And that's really our identity as a corporation, if you will, of believers, a community of believers, that is our identity from now on. So here we go, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're already moving your pen. I can see it. Good, good. For in Scripture it says, see, I lay, in, I, I lay a stone, <clears throat> I lay a stone, clue here, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, do you who believe this stone 
which by the way is Jesus, is precious. But to those who do not believe, another quote from the Old Testament, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But, I know that word but is not a metaphor, but I want you to highlight it, put a box around it, something, because here is a contrast. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to know, as we're going through this series of fiery faith, we need to realize again that the purpose of these trials in our life, and all of us go through trials. If you do not go through trials in your life, could you please come see me and let me know what your secret is? Because as far as I'm aware, everyone, Christian and non-Christian, goes through trials. The purpose, though, of, for the Christian is that God actually has a purpose for those trials in your life. And it's a good purpose. We may not feel like it at the time. We actually might hate the trial that we're going through. That's okay. But God has a purpose, and it's to refine your faith. And it's going to draw you closer to him. As we come to this very first phrase, it says, as you come to him. And I'm just going to let you know, as we're going through this series about our faith being under trial, Satan has a goal, and that goal is as you go through these trials, that you become embittered towards God, or at least indifferent, and that you get pushed away or, on your own will, run away from God. Satan's goal when you're going through these trials is to push you away from God. But God has a different goal. And actually, believe it or not, it's why you're going through those trials. He wants to win you closer to him, to his heart. He wants you to run after him. Not run away from him, but run after him. So Peter has already talked about our faith. We're precious than gold, though it perishes. He's talked about this imperishable seed that's been planted in us that has sprung up, made us born again, transformed our life. We've received a new nature. He says, add to your Philadelphia, your brotherly love, agape, which is that sacrificial love. It's going to cost you something. <laughs> as you are being knit together as a body, if you do not have that sacrificial love, you may kind of get along, but you will not have that corporate sense, that community sense that we read through the book of Acts, which by the way, this coming Monday night, six o'clock here, we're going through that class, Acts and the Pauline epistles. Got a lot in store for you. Bring your pen and paper. We're going to really be digging in and we're going to take about three or so weeks in the book of Acts um, to, to make sure we understand what's going on there. And then we're going to launch into the Pauline epistles. But God has called us together as a, as a community, as, you, as we're going to discover very, very much so in the book of Acts. But here then, he says, as you come to me, not as these trials are turning you away, but as you come to Jesus, the living stone. And he begins this series of metaphors, starting with Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. Actually, he calls him a cornerstone 
<laughs> and there's some debate as far as how you translate the next one, capstone. Is it really, you know, the capstone? That's the, that's the last stone. Sometimes it's a huge one put on top of the structure, but it's the last one. Um, a cornerstone is pretty simple. You know what a cornerstone is. It, unfortunately, in our day, a cornerstone is more of a memorial stone. And it's kind of put in there about waist high or, or chest high. And it talks about when the building was built and maybe the name who funded whatever, and it's a memorial. And that is not what a cornerstone is, though. Cornerstone is the very first stone that you lay on top of the foundation, and every, all the other stones at right angles are, are set in place according to that cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first. Everything builds off of it. Jesus is that cornerstone. What, he, what then God builds is what Peter calls a spiritual house. Okay, that's what cornerstones are used. You're building a house. You might see it as the temple. That's another metaphor that's used to describe the corporate body of Christ, the community of believers. <clears throat> but this cornerstone, this living stone, <clears throat> is not just a stone that's alive. Remember Jesus in John 6, he said that he was the living bread, and then a little bit later, he says that he was the bread of life. And I'm going to suggest to you that this stone, yes, indeed, it is living. And it, he came and tabernacled, God tabernacled amongst us. And he has become that first stone. And all of us are built and hinged and connected to him and set in alignment in this spiritual house by him. But he is also not just a living flesh and blood type of stone, but he is also that stone that gives life, even as that term bread of life communicates to us. He's the stone of life. Everything that you have today, that, that spiritual life, the fact that you've been brought out of darkness into his light, which is talked about in verse 10 here, that is because... He brings life into you. He is the source of your entire existence. Now, here is the tragedy in the church today. We don't understand that. And we don't even seek to live that way. We don't seek to live in a way in which everything about my life, the dreams that I have, my purpose, what do I do day to day, all of that is controlled by my relationship with Jesus Christ. He is everything. He is my life. He is your life. He feeds you. He gives you strength and purpose and vision. He gives you joy. Everything flows from this relationship to Jesus and us as living stones in relationship to this cornerstone, Jesus. Everything, my entire life is built in accordance with him. All of our lives are. But he says, you're being built together as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. That means a building fitted together. I was reading and was very impressed because um, they, they did this with the temple. But then uh, we discover in other countries them doing this. But they would actually cut rocks, the temple specifically, no tool or the sound of tools was to be heard at the temple. Now, us guys were thinking, what? Ah, 
We want to hear the tools. Come on. Well, that you need to be in the quarry then to do that. They would actually cut the stones there just right. They would bring them all the way from the quarry to the temple site where there would be no sound but moving these huge stones in place. And they were such architects and craftsmen that the stones would fit so well together. They've discovered in other lands, by the way, not using mortar, they would fit these stones so well, craft them, and they weren't all the same size. Some of them would be 60 tons or more, cut perfectly, set in place. And if you saw a picture of Blue Eagle, you could not put a, they say you cannot put a blade of grass between these stones. That's how well they were cut. Jesus is manufacturing, he is constructing, he is cutting some of those rough edges off of us as living stones ourselves to be fitted in the body of Christ, a spiritual house, so that we can do something that we're going to get to in a, in a few minutes here that it has this corporate sense, this corporate identity. But he has got, he's challenging us. You have, you have got to not just build Philadelphia in you, you have got to be willing to rub with one another so that those rough edges come off, so that you fit well together, if you will, in your family, in the church, that God has called us together with one purpose and one vision together to serve that purpose of God that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But we're living stones. But here's something that's interesting. He says, I am making you a spiritual house, so picture that house, to be a priesthood. What? And he switches metaphors on us. Okay, you're this house, and I'm constructing you. What reason to be a priesthood? And so if you can just walk with Peter as he lays this out for us, you are, you are being built together like a house so that you can become this priesthood. Now, here's what I'm going to do. If you were to look over in verse 9, one of those things, metaphors you underlined, I'm sure, was royal priesthood. I just want to touch on that. Um, I'll touch on the other there. There are actually four there in verse 9 we're going to come to in a bit, but I just want to pull that up because it goes so well with what he is talking about here as far as being a holy priesthood, and it says offering spiritual sacrifices. Now, forgive me, this, this gets very like theological, and if we're not careful, we can say that it's very religious. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I personally, maybe it's because of my upbringing, I really don't like the term religious. I, I just don't. I'm sure there's nothing wrong with it, but religious has this idea of an outward show. On, on the surface, it looks very nice and holy, and I don't like that concept because this what we're going to talk about right now, it gets to the very core of who you are, offering spiritual sacrifice. That sounds very uh, spiritual and, and, and theological, but I don't want it to sound like religious. That's Religious to me is, is dead and lifeless, and this is rich, and, and I want you to understand this. Why does he, look over there in verse 9, he says a royal priesthood. So who is royalty? Kings are royalty. So we have this concept of kingship and ruling, and on the other hand, this concept of the priesthood. 
So those were the two main leaders in Israel. You have the king who led politically. You have the high priest and the priesthood who led religiously. And so Peter puts these together and he calls us together as a community, a royal priesthood. Why doesn't he call us a priestly kingship? Why doesn't he just switch them around? A priestly kingship with the focus being on ruling. Well, I'm going to suggest to you because he wanted the emphasis to be on the fact that you are priests. Again, try and get rid of the religiosity of that, that maybe when you think of priests and priesthood, you think of the flowing robes and, and all of these things. And they were just in the Old Testament. They were pictures of what is spiritually true in our lives now. But here's what the priest did. The priest, his goal was to serve God. His goal was to serve God. Here is where the issue lies. Our entire life, if we were to ask, if I were to ask you the question, what is the purpose of your life? What is the goal in your life? What do you want to, what is it that you're striving for? And if you were to ask, that that question would be asked to the entire body of Christ, not just here at Powerline, but throughout the world. I would venture to say between, listen, it's 80 to 90, I'm guessing a bit, but between 80 and 90%, here's what they would say. Here's my goal in life. I want to be happy. I want to be blessed. Okay. Jim did a great Bible study with Friday night talking about blessed, but he he didn't necessarily equate it with happiness because... Happiness is more of an emotion. Joy is more of an attitude. And there are times in your life in which that happiness may not necessarily be there. The joy will be. Now, I'm not preaching on joy today and happiness and the difference, but I'm just going to simply say that most people, their goal in the Christians, their goal in life is I want to be happy. I want to be happy in my marriage. And if the marriage doesn't work, I guess I got to move on and find another, you know, Man, woman, whatever. Um, you know, if, if my job doesn't work out and I don't like my boss and he doesn't make me feel happy and I'm not happy at my work, I'm just going to quit and I'll look for another job. Well, good luck with that, if, especially if you have kids. And, and we, in our relationships with people, we get involved in a church and, you know, we just don't feel happy. And before you know it, God is trying to put his finger on stuff for us to grow in and it makes us feel uncomfortable, i.e. not happy. And as a result, we want to go to another church because this church isn't making me happy. And I can recommend a lot of churches to you that will make you happy. You can go online and watch on TV, and some of the largest churches in America will make you happy, but they never preach on sin. They never call us. They never call you to to serve and pursue Christ no matter what circumstances you face. Because the whole point, the whole goal is God wants to make you happy. Here's what I'm telling you today. That is not God's goal. It might be yours. You want to be happy. That is not God's goal for you. Does that disappoint you? Let's understand something. In America, we live in opulence. We live in such luxury. When was the last time your life was threatened? Probably like never. Maybe 
your life has been threatened. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries, and they face this, if not every day, every week. Their life is threatened. There are brothers and sisters in third world countries, and for you to come dressed as you are, and we're a very casual church, they would say you are rich beyond imagination, and you're wearing your casual clothes. We live in a, a, a culture that has modified the way we think. Life, we have been conditioned to think, is about me, and it's about my desires being fulfilled. I want to walk in my purposes, and I want to feel contentment and fulfillment. That's a huge operative word in the church today. Being fulfilled, maximizing or uh, achieving my greatest potential. Now, I'm all about you walking in everything that God has for you, but is that your goal? Here's where I'm going with this. Our goals can be all about me. Uh, about rising up to be the CEO in the company or pastoring the largest church in America or, you know, receiving the award of best dad in America. Yeah. And, and we, we, our life can be about me accomplishing great things. But if that is your goal, you are going to miss it in this life. Now, kudos for those who achieve the awards. I'm just saying that's just not your goal. What is your goal? As a priesthood, it is to serve Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to let you know right now, Peter is communicating this. You know what? I cannot promise or pray away the conflicts and the trials that you go through. I may pray that God would rescue your loved one, your husband or wife, from martyrdom, that they may die. I can't promise you that they won't. I can't promise you that you're not going to go through trials this coming week because the reality is they're very real and there's poverty and you are considered outcasts because you're Christians. And I'm speaking to you this generation that you may lose your life. Do not make it your goal to find your life. Jesus taught us that. He said, the one who seeks to gain his life, he's the one who's going to lose it. The one who seeks, the one who loses his life for Jesus, he's the one who gains it. Does this sound like upside down thinking? And I'm going to have to confess to you, it, it truly does seem that way, doesn't it? And it's because here, and I don't think it's just America, but it's almost everywhere in which as, as a people of God, our thinking is about me. It's about me actualizing my potential. Huge operative word, actualizing your potential. That's what it's about. Now, again, I am not saying that God does not want you to walk in this incredible calling in your life. That's just not your goal. 
because that goal is me-centered. It is about serving Christ. And I'm going to tell you that as you give your life away, that is when you find it. It's when you serve sacrificially, when you add to your Philadelphia agape, and no matter how hard it is, pursuing Christ, he will allow you to walk in this calling. That's just not your goal. Now, if this is a little bit harder, let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine driving down the road, let's say Lake Mary Boulevard, during rush hour. Many people drive down the road, they're very close to the steering wheel, and where is their focus? Their focus is just over the hood. They want to make sure that they don't run over anything and that they're not too close to the car in front of them and they're short-sighted and their focus is right there in front of them because they don't want their car damaged. And they think that's the best place for my eyes to fall in order to stay in my lane. Then those who have actually maybe been trained by expert drivers, they realize, no, my focus needs to be down the road. I want to see in traffic, I don't want to just see the car in front of me. I want to see several cars down the road because at four cars ahead, when I see those lights come on, my light, my brake lights come on. I don't wait for the car in front of me to put his brakes on. And they, just, they look down the road. They're not short-sighted. They're looking down the road. And when it, for example, when a plowman is plowing his field, he doesn't try to align himself to the row next to him, he looks down on the other side of the field and finds a point that he aims for and he is able to make a straight line. The one who is looking down the road driving, he'll drive straight. The one who's looking just over his hood, like this, going down the road. That's just that's just what happens. And, and Peter is telling us that when you are serving God and that is your focus and you're giving your life away, you're going to stay in the lane. You see? You're going to accomplish the goal. It's just your focus is so different. We live in an upside-down kingdom. I'm just going to let you know off the bat. If you haven't discovered this already, Newsflash, you are living in the kingdom of God, and it is an upside-down kingdom, meaning it is vastly different than the kingdom around us, the kingdoms that we can see with our eyes. Hollywood, that kingdom tells us that the way you make it is by making happiness your goal, and eventually one day you'll find it, or follow your heart. Well, guess what? Well, it depends on what you call your heart. Sometimes your heart's wrong. No, you want to follow, you want to stay in the lane, you want to make that, that row, plowing that row straight. Here is where you need your focus to be, and specifically on Jesus Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone. Everything in my life flows in and it seeks to be in alignment with that cornerstone. And yet many in the body of Christ, wait, 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 it's about me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It is about everything but you. It is about giving your life away. It is about serving. That's why he calls it a royal priesthood. Because the focus here is priesthood and serving God and giving rather than on ruling and, well, how can I rule? How can I be top dog? And Peter doesn't want that mistake. But you are a king. You are ruling in this world. It's just that as you rule, your focus is serving God and offering, as he says, spiritual sacrifices. 
Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercies that he just lays out in the first 11 chapters of Romans, remember as we were going through this book just a few months ago, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. I'm just going to let you know, church, following Jesus will cost you your life. And I'm not saying that that means you're going to die a martyr's death. You might. I'm not saying you won't, but that's not what I necessarily mean. But what I am saying is this. It will cost you your life, meaning your life will no longer be about you. It will be about serving God and his kingdom. Paul puts it this way. He's writing to the Philippians. Just after he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature and form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took on the appearance of a man, the form of a servant. Jesus, when he came to this earth, came to serve and not be served. Right after he says this, that your attitude should be the same of Jesus, as Jesus, a sacrificed life, Paul says this. He says, I am being poured out, poured out like a drink offering for you. I'm a sacrifice and service coming to you, faith. I'm being poured out like a priest takes a drink offering. I don't know how much a, the drink costs, whatever, and he takes it and he pours it out. You cannot put that back in the cup. It's gone. It's wasted. You remember the story of David in the cave of Adullam, and he's thirsty. He grew up in Bethlehem. Have you ever grown up with, and you just liked something about the water in Bethlehem, I guess, was just the sweetest, coldest. It was awesome. And he said, you know, I would just love, I would die for a cup of cold water from Bethlehem. And so two of his mighty men, and, and, and they risked their lives for this. And they went into the, the Philistine garrison in Bethlehem, and they got a cup of water, brought it all the way back, miles back to David, hiding in this cave from Saul and, and, and such. And he takes that cup, and he is overwhelmed with it. You know what he does? He doesn't just say, guys, just watch me as I drink this. He takes it, and he says, this is too sacred for me. And he pours it on the ground. Not meaning I could care less about this, but rather that was actually honoring them. This, what you guys did, this sacrifice, that it's too sacred for me to even consider drinking it, and he pours it out. David, you can't put it back in the cup. It's mixed with the dirt. Good luck with that. It's gone. That is your life. You are being poured out like a drink offering. It is not about how much money you can make in this life. It is not about how happy you can be moment by moment, day to day. It's not how many video games you can win, young guys. It's not about how many people you can step over in the corporate world or how many rungs on the ladder you can climb. It is about this cornerstone. It is about sacrificing and being poured out for him. Even in the midst of trials. Can I just tell you, 
I have grown as a follower of Jesus so much more in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances that I would not want to wish upon my enemy than I have in successful times. And God has blessed me. He has given me successful times. And I have enjoyed those. But I have grown the most by far in those trials. I was just sitting down the other day sharing with someone just to, and I I couldn't stop talking. (laughs) We went on for too long, but I could not stop talking, just sharing as far as what God did in this situation, in this situation, in this situation, and, and oh my goodness, this was so hard, and yet look what God did. And my point in sharing with this person is this. Do you want to truly be everything that God wants you to be in being that poured out drink offering, that spiritual sacrifice to God, totally living for him and seeing the abundant miracles of God? Scripture in Second Chronicles tells, you, tells us this, the eyes of the Lord. You ready for this? The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. That means he's looking. He's doing this, looking throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are halfway committed to him. Do you believe me? No. Whose hearts fully, seriously? You mean he wants, he's looking for people whose hearts are fully committed? Isn't that a little bit like setting the bar too high? Really? I mean, you got to be fully committed to him? The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, I've shared this illustration before, but you're aware that water boils at 212, right? What happens when water is at 210? See a little bit of steam coming off. Doesn't boil. There's a chemical reaction. I don't understand it, but when it reaches 212, exactly 212, that's when it boils. That's when that chain reaction occurs. When you live your life at 212, that's when God pours out grace. When you are fully surrendered and pursuing him and your life is a drink offering and sacrifice to him. And it's not about me and what I can gain in this world and how high can I rise in the corporate ladder. It's all about Jesus, the cornerstone. I align my life with that. I live for him and only him. It is not about me and how happy I can be. When I make Jesus my focus, and I am living it to 12, that's when the water boils. That's when the miracles happen. That's when God just, he pours out his grace, and your back is up against the wall, and you're crying out, God, I can't. I, 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 there's no more rope here, God. I, I, I can't climb any higher. I can't get out of this problem, and I'm asking you, God, to come to my rescue. And God's looking, and your heart's fully committed to him. You're a candidate for my outpoured grace as your heart is crying out to me desperate because you know that you can't, but he can. And he lavishes you with his grace. And that grace, Paul says, is sufficient. It's more than enough. And I can't tell you how many times in my life my back has been up against the wall. And I just said, God, this Life is not about me. If I die today, if I can bring you glory, then I am awesomely okay with that. 
Paul, Peter is challenging us to be that poured out drink offering. I am realizing I may not be able to get through this entire sermon. I want you to see something here. He says that those who trust in him, this cornerstone, because when you trust in him, you too become a living stone. When you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. Never. Can you say that word with me, church? Never. You know what the word never means? It means not ever. Never. Never, ever, ever be put to shame. And I had to pause and I had to ask myself, how is it? I mean, let's just talk where the rubber meets the road here right now. How does a believer never be put to shame? Because this is key for us to walk in, verse 9, and what he calls us corporately. Now, I'm going to have to be quick with this. I didn't want to be, but I'm going to need to be. Never be put to shame. What is it that causes shame in your life? Is it when you succeed and people applaud you? Is it when you do the good things in life and you succeed? No, it's when you blow it. It's when you fail. It's when you are called to something and you don't make it. It's when we sin. And and, and Peter is saying that when you trust in Jesus, you will never be put to shame. And the question is, well, how does that happen? To answer that question, I'm going to take a step back, kind of get a running leap with this. Do you ever go down I-4 and you read the billboard, God's not angry with you? Have, you? have you seen that billboard? How many of you have seen that billboard? Raise your hand. Okay. Is it still up, by the way? I've not been... I, I, help me out. No? I don't, okay. I don't know. I know the church who put it out there. I have mixed feelings about that. I agree with it and I disagree with it because it depends on who you is. Because the Bible is very clear, if the you is the world, the Bible says that by nature we were objects of his wrath. The Bible says that those who trust in Jesus have life, but those who do not, those who reject Jesus, remain under God's wrath. And God's wrath is the natural outflow of when his holiness is offended by sin. And, and we, we can't understand this because we equate wrath with, like, losing it. Like, just going off the wire, being so angry you can't control it. And that, that's not what this is. God must punish sin. And consequently, because of this, his wrath is poured out upon everyone who chooses to reject him and keep Jesus at arm's length, or at least pretend to be a believer and kind of have this facade, yeah, I go to church and I even read my Bible, and and maybe by doing these things, I'll curry favor with God and he'll like me and love me and let me in. And I'm saying, church, you got this upside down. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Amen, church? And so that sign, it says, God is not angry with you, It depends on who you is because his anger, his wrath is poured out. And scripture is very clear with this upon all ungodliness and those who do ungodly things and are separated from him and are still remain outside the 
the holy of holies, if you will. But if you, now follow me here, if you means believers, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You see, in Isaiah 54, 9, it says, to, in the context, the barren woman and her descendants, which is the church, Jew and Gentile, years down the road, I will never be angry with you again. Never be angry with you again. I want you to think about that. I do not believe I am taking this verse out of context because it helps us understand something I'll get to in a second. God is not angry even as the Christian sins. Were you aware of this? Why is that? I'm going to throw out this huge, very religious-sounding theological term. If you want me, if, if, if you want, you can write it down. Please don't ask me to spell it. It'll take too long. It's the word propitiation. Try saying that sometimes. Propitiation. You know what that is? That means that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath. You know, that means that because Jesus died, my sins were placed on Jesus, and Jesus himself was punished for me so that I do not have to be. I don't have to walk around day to day with this guilt on my back, and the only reason why there is guilt that we wrestle with is because we have failed to understand the forgiveness we find in the cross and this concept of propitiation. God doesn't pour out his wrath upon his church. Scripture doesn't. Now, I'm going to let you know this. Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Very different. If you're sitting here today and you feel this weight of guilt and you're a believer, grasp today the vast extent of God's love for you, God's forgiveness for you, and understand this. God is not angry with you and he is not disappointed with you. And just letting that sink in for a moment. You know the hardest job that I have ever done in my life? It's not trying to match a paint on a bumper that was like next to impossible to match. One vehicle I had to spray it three times. That wasn't the hardest thing. You know what the hardest thing for me to do was as a dad spanking my children. And the reason for that, and I can remember, oh goodness, the first time I spanked my precious Kate, I cried. I cried. I tried not to show her my tears, but it was, it was like, God, I can't believe, I know I have to do this. And I'm going to trust you that by disciplining her, it will help her follow you one day with all of her heart. And, and God did that, by the way. But that was the hardest job that I ever did. I wasn't angry with her. I didn't yell at her. I didn't say, you embarrass me. I wasn't disappointed in her. I was disappointed in what she did. I was not disappointed in her. I loved her, and my heart at that moment was aching. Right now, I am feeling the emotion of that moment years ago, like 30 years ago, I guess, and, and, and spanking her, and, and it overwhelmed me. 
because I loved her so much. Can you please grasp this concept of the breadth of Christ's love for you and that he is not disappointed in you? Can you imagine living the rest of your life with this sense of God's just disappointed with me? Can you imagine living your life, and I'm sorry some of you live this way, that your parents are just completely disappointed with you? Wow. I cannot imagine the weight of that. Church, I want you to know you will never be put to shame. That shame that you feel, that is what Jesus died for. That disappointment that you feel in your relationship with God, he doesn't want you to feel that way because he's not. He disciplines you as a father disciplines a child. Maybe not the way your father did. If you had an angry dad, an unloving dad, hope that's not what my children grew up with or see it that way. But it tore me up when I first began disciplining my children. That's how much your father loved you. Here's why this is so, if you miss this, you will not understand the significance of verse 9. Those who reject Jesus, it says in the previous verse, they stumble over him. And it says they do this because they disobey the word to which they were destined. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to make a wrong assumption here, and you're going to think, wow, why would God destine people to sin? That is not what it says. Look at it again. Just look at it again. Verse 8. What is it? Or, yeah, verse 8 there. What does that verse, what is the subject? Think hard. Subject, verb, direct object. That's right. Get your grammar right. What is the subject? Guess what? There's no subject there. There's no subject. And if you're not careful... You can think, well, God must have appointed some to eternal life, and he appointed some to be damned in hell. I'm sorry, but where do you find that in Scripture? God doesn't destine anyone to hell. God does not destine anyone to destruction or destine anyone to stumbling and and disobeying the truth, not believing in Jesus. No one is. You know what does that? And here's the significance of it. Sin does. The, the, the depravity, the infection, and the corruption of sin compels me to reject Jesus and pursue what I want. That is what destines us. But you are redeemed. You have been brought out of that. Verse 9, but you are a holy nation. And he's wanting to contrast this. These people, they're locked into their sin. And, and they, they're, as, as Romans 3 says, they are, their will is in bondage. They're addicted to this way of life, this sinful lifestyle, and Jesus must come and rescue them. Well, you've been rescued. And as a result of being brought out of that darkness into his light, into his love, into his kingdom, into this whole different lifestyle that he's called you to and empowered you by his spirit to live, you, and here here he goes, and I'm going to have to be really brief with this, I'm sorry. You are a holy It says right here, let me just get this. You are, excuse me, a chosen people. A chosen people. That's the first one. Now, understand that this word that's translated people, it's an adequate word. Some of you have race. Race is an inadequate word. This word actually comes from our word genealogy. 
When we talk about genealogy, what are we really talking about? We're talking about our bloodline, aren't we? Our bloodline. You are a chosen bloodline. You're related. That's what this word's getting at. That's why some versions talk about generation. Well, generation, we don't think of it that way, though fathers generate, if you will, sons, daughters, and such, so maybe it works there. But generation, it just it, it's people of the same age. They're not blood-related. So that word doesn't work too well here. Some of you have down in your version race. That gets a little bit closer, but he's talking about a, a people, a family, a bloodline. You are integrally connected. The blood of Jesus has pulled you together, and you are a chosen people. He has set you apart. He has set every single one of you apart. But in this context, it's not about the individual choosing. You have collectively, God has set you apart as his chosen people. And he has a purpose then for you. And then he moves on and he says that you are a royal priesthood. I've touched on that one enough. And then he says you are a holy nation. The whole group, the whole lot of it. You're, you're a holy nation. This is what he has, this is, this is your purpose. You see, when you talk about an identity change, that's what we're looking at with all of these metaphors. This is a metaphor. Holy nation. I mean, people, we're not a nation, but a nation is this ethnic group of people. They're blood-related. They are, they have this sense of identity. I love it, honestly, in sports, when nations place, like in the FIFA uh, soccer tournament, in which they play one another, and they're, they're just so zealous for their team to win. I don't know about you. I love that. I love it because they're blood-related. They're, they're, maybe it goes back like many, many generations regardless, but they're related, and, and, and there's this, this sense of interconnectedness. That's you and me. As a holy nation, interconnected, following Jesus, the chief cornerstone in which all of my life flows from that. You are a holy nation, a nation that reflects the holiness of Jesus. And then he concludes with this. And he says that you, excuse me, a people belonging to God. You belong to him. You have been purchased. That word, if these four Phrases, by the way, go back to Exodus 19. And just because I need to cut this a little bit short, I'm just going to give you that reference. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. And the Hebrew word, Old Testament, Exodus, was written in Hebrew. First Peter, New Testament, written in Greek. These four metaphors are taken from the Old Testament. The Hebrew word that's now being referred to here, except in Greek, for possession or, or a people belonging to God is this word that means a set apart, stored up, set apart, uh, uh, set apart, stored up, treasured possession. This idea of wealth, riches, set apart. Do you have something that's not just of extrinsic value, but intrinsic value. In other words, it's, it's worth a lot, but it's like an heirloom, and it's very precious to you. That is what he is referring to. You are that heirloom to God. You belong to him, 
But you are that treasured possession that he stores up. It's his. You, us, we belong to him. And it all comes back to this idea that Jesus purchased us. And for our, in our lives then, as we go through these trials, all of these things, these metaphors that we're talking about, look at the next verse and what is the purpose? Why does he call you a chosen people or a chosen bloodline of people? Why does he call you a royal priesthood? Why does he call you a holy nation, a people belonging to him, a very treasured possession of God's? It's so that you may declare his praises. You have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been rescued from the blindness that you had when you were in the world and addicted to your sin. That sin, it blinded you. Who God really was, it blinded you to his love. And you've been rescued from that. And I love the way the song, the very last breath that Jesus breathed on the cross, that's the breath he breathed into you and made you alive. I love the way that that's put. The breath of God, this, this Greek word is zoe, it's this life, the eternal life, John calls it, and it's been breathed into us and we have this life and we have now been set apart as his and it's for this reason to declare his praises. And I'm not just talking about as we gather together and corporately worship. That's important. But as you're going through trials, your purpose is not just to grit your teeth and go through it. It's to praise him. God, thank you that you have given me this day and I can be used by you as this poured out drink offering. I can, I can serve you, God. And Father, no matter what happens to me in my life, even if today I lose it, I will declare your praises. Because I will live for you. And my life is consumed with you. You, 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 Jesus. And when you have that mentality, because he has set you apart, you are going to be able to have that attitude of praise all the time. Not just when things are great and it's successful, But he will do, you will be able to worship him. You'll be able to praise him. You'll be able to live your life as this living sacrifice, excited that you're in the kingdom and excited that you get to sacrifice everything and perhaps even the very breath that you breathe for him. 